Hey all, thanks for coming back to Asset Horizon, and today we have a fantastic episode. But before we do that, I would like you to become a supporter of Asset Horizon, either at the $1 level, the $5 level, or the $10 level on our Patreon account. If you are looking for ways to support us, that is probably one of the best ways that you can do so. Alternatively, we have publications. One is out already, The Philosopher's Tarot, as many of you know. And then coming later this year, we have Anti-Oculus. Just navigate to our Linktree link to find all the links and the ways that you can support us. For example, you could also support us by purchasing something from the Crit Drip store. Also, if you haven't already, navigate your way to Zero Books and Repeater Media's YouTube channel or their podcast feed. Add them to your subscription feeds. We have new episodes coming out as recent as this week. And I think it's there that I'll be putting my newest video on James Hillman and the capitalism of the ego coming out hopefully very soon. And so without further ado, let's get to Tiger Lu and his thesis on Bataille, Deleuze, sadism, and masochism. It is as if to understand the meaning of masochism, one must already be a masochist. Yet, without a certain ready-made understanding of masochism, how can a masochist be bold enough to claim self-knowledge? So which comes first? Chicken or egg? Masochist or masochism? Whichever one picks to be the starting point of our inquiry, we seem to be possessed by a vicious circle. Unless, of course, there is something universal about being a masochist. Unless there is something unique about masochism which makes it intrinsic to life. If so, one needs no longer worry about where to begin, since one has always already begun. Where one seeks to unlock a mystery, one needs only a moment of contemplative retrospection. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast, and today we are discussing the general economies of sadism and masochism with researcher and friends of the show, Tiger Lu, who recently completed a thesis on sadomasochism at the Center for Research in Modern European Philosophy. He wrote it on Freud, Bataille, and how a masochistic view of reality can change our view of the economy at the political, emotional, psychic, and cosmic level. From which we, and of course, we drew the opening quote from that very thesis. Tiger, welcome to Asset Horizon. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Of course, joined as ever by Craig, and of course, Noah, our resident Bataillian sadomasochistic correspondent. And I'll pass it over to him for the first question. Yeah, happy to be here, Tiger. Thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed your thesis. And it's from what we understand to be the first part of a, a larger project extricating what's missing from Bataille and his allegiance to sadism and hopefully supplementing some masochism, some inserting some masochism into his project, which will unlock some missing pieces, perhaps, as you as you frame it. Firstly, you kind of wanted to, you know, get a little bit about your background. What started you on the path of researching Masak, who's largely hard to find, as we discussed in the pre-show, hard to find translations of. Even the German texts seem to be incomplete. And he left his larger project, The Legacy of Cain, unfinished. So how did you get there and maybe brief and tease us, tease us out why Masak, perhaps? Yeah. So it's a pretty long story. So initially, I was very obsessed with Deleuze. And I was hoping to write something about Deleuze. Then I thought it might not, might not be a very good idea because I was so obsessed with Deleuze, I need to get out of it. At the same time, because of the obsession, there's a kind of a masochistic relationship with Deleuze. Uh, and it just occurred to me that I can write about a work that Deleuze produced that is perhaps not so Deleuzean and try to dig into this whole. So initially, my thought was to just write generically about masochism. And specifically, I wanted to write about the political aspect of masochism. And, and then my supervisor told me that would be boring. And just to push into like even more cosmic or crazy direction. And that's when I begin to dig into Deleuze, the book more, dig into Sakhamasok more and dig into some kind of try to ground it in something bigger. And that's when I, it occurred to me this notion of economy that, that Freud was using, also Bataille was also using. And I was trying to, on that basis, trying to, to create like a philosophy of Sakhamasok that wasn't done before 
I still haven't done yet because I didn't manage to do it. But yeah, that's kind of generally how I got into this stuff. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And how, you know, why did maybe kind of before we move on to like what Adam wants to ask next, why why did Deleuze write about Masak, do you think, briefly? Who is Leopold von Masak to you? Like what if what is something that kind of is missing from the Wikipedia article, the limelight, right, for, mm-hmm. for that kind of figure? Yeah, so so with Deleuze's book, it's very difficult to guess his intention, but one thing that I find very int- very interesting about the book is that even though I said that it's perhaps a book by Deleuze that's not so Deleuzean, but there is like something very typical of Deleuze, which is what I attempted to call his psychoanalytically anti-psychoanalysis and also dialectically anti-Hegelian position that he was trying to t- take. And it's very consistent with you know, different repetition. And a lot, some of the themes in this book eventually develop into Antiedipus. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that was, that was kind of what makes this book so intimately, or rather what, what justifies this book as someone who was written by Deleuze rather than just his side project. As Leopold Sakhamasok, he was, I would say he's an Austro-Ukrainian writer. So the reason why I emphasize the Ukrainian aspect is because it's not only because his parents, his mom, was Ukrainian, but also his writings were largely inspired by the what he would call the Jewish region of Galicia. So that would be in the region of Ukraine and Poland. And he, like someone such as Freud, he has a very distant relationship with Judaism. And he famously said that in order to write Judaism lovingly, he has to distance himself from the Jewishness. So one thing that's really interesting about his writing is that even though he writes about Ukraine, his stories are all inspired by the Jewish tales in Ukraine, he writes still in a very Orientalist way. He writes it from the standpoint of... But interestingly, there's a masochistic kind of dimension to this writing because even though it's like a Orientalist projection of this kind of Austro-Empire point of view on Ukraine, but at the same time, dialectically, there is a kind of a reversal or reflection on on Europeanness or on being a Western European, and he was trying to he he, he occupies this very strange position of writing. So I guess that's what's missing from some of the kind of biographical details on on, on Wikipedia. That was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, Adam, you want to go for it? I mean, thinking about these ideas of Deleuzean sort of dialectical anti-Hegelianism or dialectical anti-dialectic, one of the things that I think you really pick up on with Deleuze is how he tries to shatter the, the typical dialectic we have regarding masochism, particularly when we put it in the phrase sadomasochism. So of course, you know, to, to use the joke, so sadists and masochists go to a bar, the masochist says, hurt me, and the sadist says, no. And then Deleuze, you know, Deleuze writes in, of course, his introduction to Venus and Furs that this makes no fucking sense. Why on earth would a sadist have a masochist for a victim? The, the libidinal sort of dialectic doesn't even sort of kick off there. So I guess in the course of your research, how do you think that we have misunderstood masochism in light of thinking about it term, you know, fully in terms of sadomasochism as an idea, which is just a, you know, is it a lumping together of two categories which simply by their perceived sexual abnormality therefore complementary, or is there an internal dialectic which links the sadist to the masochist in a way which doesn't fit the typical dialectical schema of, you know, you are simply the inverted negation of the other? Yeah, so so when Deleuze criticizes Freud, when he criticizes this, sado, this term sadomasochism, is there are several levels of attack. So on the first level, the critique is against a kind of vulgar dialectics. Because if we read the 1905 version of the three essays on the theory of sexuality, Freud's justification for sadomasochism is basically saying that, well, if a sadist wants, well, if a sadist wants to know, or if a sadist is able to derive pleasure from hurting people, then the sadist must know that the person that they were hurting is already being hurt, which means that the sadist is at the same time Oh, he doesn't say at the same time initially, he says, is a masochist. So in that sense, sadomasochism, sadism, masochism are two sides of the same coin. And for Deleuze, that's 
that's just very vulgar representational thinking. And uh, but even later on, after twenty, after he wrote Beyond the Pressure Principle, after the reformulation of concepts such as death drive, uh, he tried to give Freud tried to give masochism like a more primary position. Even then, he tried to make sadism and masochism work. Tried to make it into a synthetic unity. Whether that's dialectical or not is very difficult to say. But even then, that that would be the second level of the Lewis critique, which is this impossible synthesis that Freud clearly realized that there is something distinct about masochism in relation to sadism. Yet he was still trying to force it into one process, into one impossible synthesis. But I think that irony is that uh, even though Deleuze criticizes it as a kind of impossible synthesis, but isn't Deleuze a person who also believes in impossible synthesis? Like such as disjunctive synthesis, etc. So that I believe is like kind of what Deleuze was able to achieve in the book is, is an implosion of psychoanalysis, trying to use psychoanalytic languages and trying to, in a sense, to show that these languages necessarily has a certain residual things about experience that that or the excess of experience that psychoanalytic concepts are unable to capture. But what's that excess? What, what is that? Is, is something still yet to be formulated within the book? Yeah, thank you for coming on the show again. It's really nice to have you. This is a topic that I always wanted to touch on, and I think we're really doing well so far. The one thing that I think I would like to ask at this point, if, if I were approaching this material for the first time, is what is Deleuze's formulation, or basically what is his idea about how the masochist becomes the masochist? I mean, clearly, it's not merely on the axis of pain and pleasure that the, the you know, that the sadists and, and the masochists are joined. There's something far more complex. And, and the one thing that I've noticed, I, I think your characterization of coldness and cruelty as being Deleuze's psychoanalytic anti-psychoanalysis in a way. One of the interesting things about this book is there are inflections of his relationship with Jung as Jung kind of being above Freud here. But also in his understanding of the way that the masochist, basically the will of the masochist to be punished precedes the, the institution of the law of masochism itself, which kind of connects to his understanding of Kant a little bit. I was hoping maybe you could kind of flesh out that formulation. I know Deleuze says that there's three conditions, basically, upon which the masochist grounds their own masochism. But perhaps you could say a few things about that. Yeah. So I think that actually uh, reminds me of my favorite chapter in that book, which is he was trying to resituate the logic of masochism in, in, in the history of ethics. So he lined up this kind of history of philosophy, which is very rare because that's not how he used to think about history of philosophy. Because the figure that he, he picked this time is Plato Kant, uh, which is very rare because otherwise he would have chosen Hume, Nietzsche or some kind of Hedegarian pre-Platonic figures. But this time he picked Plato, and then he says the, the revolutionary aspect of Plato is the fact that everything derived from the good, the law derived from the good. And the second revolutionary moment is Kant, who, for whom the law never derived from the good, but the law derives from the law purely from itself, the categorical imperatives, the transcendentality of it all. And the third figure he derived was Kafka. He says Kafka occupies this contradictory or rather paradoxical position of the Kantian law. So that's kind of touching on his reading of, for instance, Lacan's book on Kant avec Sad. So he says the paradox in Kafka's writing is that there is a law and it's transcendental. And because it's transcendental, we can never know what the law really is, which means that the more we obey the law, the actually the more guilty we feel. So this kind of gesture of affirming the law creates a kind of eternal recurrence that infinitely multiplies the guilt that we get from the law. And Kafka's solution to it all is irony. Only irony can resolve this kind of immense, this kind of eternal heaviness of being. And at the end, he placed Sakhmasak as a even more novel approach, which is mutilation. And he says, or rather punishment. He says, because precisely that there is a certain guilt or shame 
that's just eternally just coming down from nowhere, from the heaven, from the transcendental realm. And because we don't know the law, therefore, in order to resolve it, the punishment comes first. And this is where he started to refute Freud. So because when Freud was writing, he was trying to fit masochism into this kind of ego, superego, id structure. To the superego, Freud very explicitly identified with the Kantian categorical imperative that there is a law, there is something that's just out there and we can never reach for it. It's just there. It's kept telling us, making us feel shameful. And the ego would be the masochistic kind of position. So sadism is placed onto superego. Masochism is somewhat intuitive of the ego. And the id is just doing its own thing. And, and for Freud, the dynamic is precisely there. Sadism, superego masochism, ego, and sadomasochism is this dynamic. And Deleuze says, well, masochism, precisely because the punishment comes first, therefore this gesture of punishment actually undermines the very authority of the superego. So what you create is a suspension of the entire psychical structure of the superego id. So I kept trying to think of like examples when I was writing the thesis, and then I realized the best example would be Lana Del Rey. All of this kind of sounds about like how, like fleshing out one's desire far from, because the traditional critique about, about Lana Del Rey is this notion that, oh, she's just kind of affirming the patriarchal notion of woman. But from a Deleuzean, or at least from the Deleuzean masochistic point of view, it's precisely this kind of description or exposure of one's desire, desire to be dominated was able to suspend the very structure itself. It undermines the structure. Because the structure can only functions by not exposing itself. Well, it's interesting because I did my master's thesis precisely on this topic. So we, you and I, we kind of share something. And the example that I used, I, I, I homed in on Kafka's Before the Law, because I think that as a, a, a particular vignette shows the way in which the impulse to want to be punished or want to be subjected constructs the very libidinal circuit by which the transcendental law gets reestablished again and again in this sort of like Ixion-like eternal recurrence of the law, this infinitude of guardians of gates and so forth. But, you know, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Deleuze, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like consistent with Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche because he thinks that the typical, the, the, or the best way to demonstrate the Nietzschean eternal occurrence is precisely the law, the categorical imperative, because you have to infinitely constantly assert itself, subject yourself to the law. Right. That's great. If we could actually just sort of uh, take a bit of a, a step in a different direction regarding sort of the, the concept of thesis regarding the tie. One of the things I think which is like the, the great sort of impulse of your work so far is like, yeah, the Thai's work is based on sadism and therefore ends up restricting its own economy, even as it tries to solve philosophical and non-philosophical problems. But before we can get to the point of masochism being a problem for philosophy and also a solution to other problems caused by sadism, can we sort of ask, why is sadism a problem of philosophy? Because one of the things that I really found really interesting and particularly fascinating was how you describe sadism in terms of the battle between reason and the passions, and how the idea of you know, laying down the law at this excess, you know, this laying down of what is rational, what isn't, and where you can go, where you can't go philosophically, is really baked into the modern turn of philosophy, which is the same lineage that Deleuze and Bataille are both responding to, which is the, the lineage from, say, Hume. Hume provokes Kant. You know, Hume says that reason should always be the slave of the passions. Kant says, fuck shit, what are we going to do now? Okay, we'll delineate the rational, the irrational, and try to place everything within the guise of the rational and prohibit and literally discipline out the excess. And then if we take a, if we take a through line to that, through Victor, Schelling, Hegel, well, through Hegel we get to Bataille, and through Bataille we get to Deleuze. So I guess if we want to pose this, so why is sadism a problem for philosophy such that masochism has to enter upon the scene here. Like what Deleuze is making intervention not just against Freud, but it seems like and you are making a similar invention, of course, against the entire history of philosophy in its mode of thinking about excess. Yeah. So so with regard to sadism, 
I think one interesting takeaway from Deleuze's critique of Freud is that the reason why I called it another qualification of that book is dialectically anti-Hegelian, mm. which is the remaining mm. dialectics. And then he does, I think in some way, Deleuze thinks sadism dialectically in a sense that, so mm. sadism, if we think in terms of the concept of excess, there's a kind of excessiveness that is in some way we can read it as sadistic. And by the same time, sadism is also the failure of sadism, or rather mm. the failure of to capture a certain excess, with, which announced a kind of a different form of sadism. So one example I was thinking about is precisely the relation between Kant and Hume. So with Hume, there is a notion of excess of experience. So in the sense that we look at the, we look at the sun and the sun comes up in the morning and then comes down at night. And Hume says, well, we can never really derive much from that, even though we can kind of make some kind of induction based on that, and then we can live about our life. But at the end of the day, you never know whether the sun will just suddenly disappear the next day. So there is something about experience that is outside of conceptuality with him, or outside of the realm of knowledge. And Kant's work is, in a sense, a reaction to that. If we think about Kant as attempt to transcendentally defend rationalism against Hume. So uh, with Kant, he tried to reformulate, tried to refound the ground for trying to secure knowledge or try to, trying to secure the possibility of metaphysics against human anarchy, the anarchy of experience. And then he you know, formulated all of these different categories. By the end, there is this residual, this excess, which is object equal to X. The object is always there that we can never really capture it. And what, what came out at the end is if we read it in a somewhat tragic manner or maybe comic manner, that the subject now, because can't access to the object, therefore the subject is now forced into this process where the subject have to continually come up with different categories, try to reformulate things and try to do, use different form of judgment and trying to, you know, come to term with this kind of excessiveness. So in that sense, the, the Kantian transcendental subject is in a sense sadistic. And the reason why I said it was sadistic is because when I was first reading Freud's conception of libido in the three series on the three essays on the theory of sexuality, and like the way that he describes libido is precisely that in a transcendental manner, that in order for objects to take some sexual meaning or to take on erotic meaning, there must be a libido constantly invest meaning into things. So in the same way that there must be a Kantian transcendental subject that invest subjectivity to, to, to constitute objectivity. So in that sense, there is a kind of sadistic affinity between Kant and, 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 and Freud. And Hegel in some way was dealing with, I think as long as you deal with the same problematic of excess, there necessarily will involve some form of sadism or another. That is, mm -hmm. if we say sadism in a more ontological or metaphysical manner. But can we actually expand a little bit on that in terms of excess and sort of the idea of breaking through limits and how the idea of transgression feeds into the understanding of sadism in many ways, how you think it puts sadism and even, of course, therefore the work of Bataille and Kant and the German idealist tradition by extension at its limit. Is, is there an, un, you know, is there a, a, an unacknowledged presupposition, a transcendental of the transcendental of sadism insofar as it relies on a model of transgression, you had know, literal, literal sort of violence bursting out of the excess over that which it exceeds. Yeah, I think in some way, if we read history, the history of philosophy from the from Bataille's perspective or from Bataille's perspective, it all began with Plato, like because Plato says, "Well, you have the sun; the sun is light giving, and the excessiveness of the sun blasted all the lights onto us." So there is already a kind of a first ontological excessiveness that come, that constitutes human reason. And for Bataille, the history of philosophy has always been this process whereby trying to come to term with this excessiveness and this metamorphosized into, you know, work and, and different themes, trying to repress this kind of excessive, excessiveness as constitutive of human reason or human existence. And, and, and that's where I believe transgression comes in is, is 
is a Thai's affirmation of that which is outside of reason. So from a Bataan perspective, like I said, so the same dialectics of sadism exist. So at the same time, you have the sadism of the sun, the excessiveness of the sun. And because of that, there is a certain, also the excessiveness of experience. And therefore there's a failures, the failure of reason to capture that kind of the, the excess of experience. But because of that failure, reason itself becomes excessively sadistic. And it could be a sadism towards oneself as well. But then again, but I never formulated in that way. I'm trying to put things or trying to put certain things into Bataille's mouth. But I was just saying that we can understand it that way. Lacanians are all screaming at their, their headphones or their phones or their speakers going, say cunt of Exard. Say cunt of Exard. Now we've said it. Okay, let's move on. Craig, Noah? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I, I have a question. I, I really like this framing or this way of understanding sadism through Bataille's notion of cosmological expenditure as, as being prior to the phenomenon and the figure of, of the sadist. What I find interesting too, and, and I, I only read the latter portion of your paper at, at Adam's <laughs> advice. That's, that's all I had time for, unfortunately. And I'm not sure if you address this in your thesis, but to what extent do you think that Bataille himself as a figure, perhaps contra Deleuze, embodies the contradiction of both the sadist and the masochist. If anyone has read Surya's biography of, of Bataille, I mean, in, in some sense, it's probably the most thorough biography that we have of him. We understand not only that Bataille himself was very masochistic as a young student, stabbing himself in the hand with pencils and things like that, but in many ways, his childhood seems to express or, you know, instantiates much of the, the sort of archetypal figures that Deleuze does in his anti-psychoanalytic psychoanalysis, which is Bataille's father was one who suffered from a debilitating form of blindness and at the end of his life was almost, it was practically immobile. And I mean, there's some speculation about some abuse or something there that isn't completely fleshed out in that book. But I wonder to what extent, you know, if, if the biography compelled you to, you know, sort of plumb any particular insights about Bataille being a figure as somebody who straddles the line between sadist and masochist. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Because my initial polemic against Bataille, there are three reasons for it. One being very practical because I just need to in order to finish the thesis. I can't just agree with it. And secondly, it comes from this, this little anecdotes I heard from the SFL, which is when they were trying to do some kind of human sacrifice stuff, everybody was willing to sacrifice himself, but nobody was willing to kill. And that was something I felt like there's something very interesting about that, that this kind of inability to, to, to perform this kind of sadistic dialectic. Mm. And another thing is, um, is precisely the concept of expenditure, et cetera. I, I found it slightly more sadistic that he lacks an understanding of masochism in there. But what you mentioned there is very interesting because initially when I heard, like for instance, the, the cases where he was stabbing himself, what I was trying to elucidate in the thesis was partially that self-mutilation is not necessarily masochistic, that mm. it's, it can be sadistic as well. In the sense that in the Freudian understanding, sadism, or in the Freudian understanding of masochism, masochism is just sadism turned inwards. That's what he calls a secondary masochism, which Deleuze, well, did Deleuze criticize that? Well, I said it, that it was <laughs> a sadistic <laughs> ending of masochism that didn't, that, that isn't really masochistic. But the thing about his father, I find it very interesting because of the question of blindness. Because all of his work, one thing that he was very adamant about is excessive, excessiveness of the sun and the need for sight and the need and also the importance of the eye and the importance of light. And so blindness, blindness puts it in a very awkward spot. I'm not sure how to think about it yet. You know, it, this insight just came to me today because I read a few of the chapters in Coldness and Cruelty. I read the, the, the one on the contract ritual. And that's something that we should talk about too, is we didn't talk about contracts at all. And because you mentioned Asafel, to me, what's interesting, and this is an insight that I'm having right now inside this conversation is 
the unwillingness of anyone to take up the sadistic role inside Asafel tells me that at some level, everyone came with the contract impulse to this political formation. You know, that, that's something that could be explored. But anyway, th- this is a massive digression, but I, I've given you a f- few things to respond to. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Actually, that reminds me of another thing, which is another reason why I was going a little bit against Bataille, which is the, 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 the book Sabon Pochon by Kosovsky, the Sam and Neighbor book. And in that book, he has a very interesting critique of, not of the sadism of Bataille, but it's kind of implicitly about that, which is the question of transgression. And then he says the, the, the paradox of transgression is the fact that in order for transgression to be possible, you first of all need a prohibition, which means that transgression itself alone cannot be affirmed because every time you affirm transgression, you necessarily affirm its dialectical counterpart. So it forms into this very bizarre bad infinity paradox, which is in order to transgress, you must first prohibit. And, and then you transgress more and you prohibit more and you transgress more and you prohibit more and goes infinite. So that was kind of Kosovsky's critique. And then that's what I saw at the time, perhaps the problem of sadism or sadistic logic itself, that there's a kind of constitutive failure or a constitutive repression involved in sadism. Yeah, Jesus died for nothing if we don't continue to sin. As Adam mentioned, this is... is this is the grounds of Bataille's entire sort of anthropological turn because eroticism is only makes sense as a sadistic reading where, you know, we have to transgress, but the very fact you can transgress presupposes a prohibition, but the very act of transgressing in the way that crosses a prohibition is the distinctly human act. Eroticism is the thing that breaks rules rather than simple sort of, you know, completely delinked or delineated or, you know, de-taboo, you know, without taboos, you don't have any kind of animality here. So the economy, he ends up completely conceding to Hegel in a way, the Hegelian dialectical and the Kojevian view of man, where it's just man is caught between transgressing and habitually re-entering itself into these codes of law. But at one point in the thesis, you do pick up something which I, I really love, which is there's an idea from Massoc that one of the preconditions of the status economy is a kind of possession a kind of property which might not be tied into the same kind of dialectic and it's called like the, the hidden presupposition of the sadistic, of the sadistic dialectic, which I think is, one, just, just right. Because if you look at Kant, how does Kant justify the applicability of the categories to experience? Well, he justifies it through using a mode of logic which is tied to the Holy Roman Empire and its property laws. He, the transcendental deduction is a legal thing which establishes the sovereign eye which can legislate, it can transgress, but it is nonetheless always going to be the site of experience. So I wonder if you could, could we, could we follow this line of escape from sadism a little bit in terms of the, the property critique of sadistic logic? Yeah. So, so the question of, so the main concept there is possession. And that might take a while because I didn't get to fully formulate that concept, but hopefully I can kind of give you some background about how I come to that question of possession. So initially it's my antagonism towards the battalion concept of expenditure. I find it very fruitful, but at the same time, I feel like there's something lacking about it. And then I thought of Sahamasak's, his description of nature. So this, there is this, so one of the key, again, let's do some kind of little biographical stuff on, on Sahamasak's Uber. So, so he was, so most people know his work by Vincent Fur. But Vincent Fur is only one tiny little novella in his grander project called The Legacy of Cain, and specifically in the first volume called Love. So Legacy of Cain basically is taken from the biblical story of Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel, and, and yeah, commenced the whole dialectic of human suffering in some sense. And, and for Sahamasak, there are six prime evils that came out of the Legacy of Cain. So you have love, you have war, you have property, you have state, you have, well, I forgot the other two, but there are six. And he specifically took one reading of this story or this legacy of Cain, which is the orthodox heretics reading. So it's a group of heretics called themselves the wanderers. So the idea of the wanderers is they 
thought about the legacy of Cain, and then they did not, they, they declared that, okay, this mortal world has now fallen into the, into, into the hands of evil, into the hands of Satan. And the proof of it, which Sakamasuk referenced a lot, is the fact that if we look at this natural world, what we see is a whole economy of life preying on this, life exploiting other lives, life not really giving a shit about any other things. Sounds a little bit Darwinian, but he goes in a very completely different direction. So he says, well, look at all of these kind of dialectics, these horrible things. And what does nature do? Well, nature herself, specifically as the other, so this is a kind of romantic legacy of eternal feminine. So nature herself doesn't actually give a crap about it all. So nature as cold, nature as indifferent. So that's where I was latching onto. So from there, the wondrous ideal was, okay, precisely because nature is cold and doesn't, God doesn't care either. And therefore it's sinful to live, to participate in this mortal realm in any way. So you cannot practice religion, even though there are Orthodox Christians. You can't practice religion because to participate in any religious institution, you're per- participating in the, in the business of Satan. And you can also not make any money. You cannot own any property. You also cannot work. You cannot fall in love. You cannot marry. You cannot do anything. And you can, you cannot beg for money because that would be work, but you can take shelter if someone offer food or shelter to you. So the wondrous position is precisely because God is absent. Nature is cold. Nature is indifferent. Therefore, the proper religious ideal is precisely to enter into the state of withdrawal. And that's where everything kind of all of the dialectics of Sakamasak's work commands, which is this kind of fundamental withdrawal. So then I thought withdrawal was the other side of withdrawal and indifference. And I thought perhaps a concept of possession can come in. Mm-hmm. No, this is this is super helpful because something you know, and hopefully this is this next question is relevant to to what you just said, and I think it's something that we need to explain a little bit for the listener that's not familiar with Masak is that masochism in the way Deleuze portrays it anyway is very specific in in that there's a contract, there's a third party, there's 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 things that fall apart at some point. There's different, the words of suspension is used, right? And then the coldness and the cruelty of the mother. There's the discussion of, his, of three mothers in the book and things of this and, and things like this. And I was wondering, maybe you could kind of paint the picture of all of this as very specific and a very specific erotic moment and sexual moment. And is there any way just because Bataille and especially we're reading in the we're doing volume two of a cursed shares a seminar group reading group right now and it's the history of eroticism and we're talking about eroticism a lot and that's very important for Bataille and that's another way that I, I see Masak and Bataille being very useful to each other and of course say it is that there's an eroticism happening there's a mode of eroticism of love of sex what is the so the second part of that beyond what is masochism and what are the mothers etc what is eroticism for Masak, is that is that another interface for Bataille besides just his general economy and this critique of the general economy that you have? Yeah, I think it's very interesting if we place eroticism into Sakamasak because, so for Bataille, eroticism is related to eating and death, but most, and sex, but most predominantly death because death is the most wasteful thing. And anthropologically, it's precisely this wasteful things. So like eating is very wasteful. Like why are we eating meat or using so much energy to produce so little? And why are we, you know, having sex is clearly not productive. It's causing a lot of energy and that's causing so much energy. And that's the basis of this, the erotic anthropology or eroticist anthropology of Bataille. But that's based on his notion of a certain kind of repression of this kind of primal excessiveness of being. That there is work, therefore all of these things become erotic because of we're repressing, we're, we're restrict, we're suppressing. Whereas in the case of Sakamasak, how I just painted, there is no such a kind of excessiveness of nature. Nature is considered to be withdrawal, is considered to be in the state of indifference. And, and because of that, eroticism must now be derived differently based on this kind of indifference. And I was thinking 
something I didn't manage to do is, is it possible to think about eroticism through the concepts such as possession? And very interestingly, Bataille did mention several times in kind of a cursive share volume two, specifically the notion of possession. So possession is related to capture, the need to capture energy, the need to hunt, and the need to, or if we think about romantically or sexually, there is a, a kind of possession, if we understood it ontologically, not in some kind of Andrew Tate patriarchal notion of like the man hunting woman, but in the sense that there is a kind of possession between different beings in sexual activity or like eating is quite, quite, quite obviously there's a possession going on. And equally death, death is interesting because it is the impossibility of possession. It's the inability to possess immortality in a sense. But of course, I'm not talking in a very kind of non-concrete abstract way that because I didn't get to really think about it enough. Yeah, that was kind of what I was thinking could be a possibility is what if we don't have a sadistic presupposition? Is it possible to think about Bataille or what happens if Bataille reads Sakhamasak? Yeah, well, sorry. exactly. Oh, sorry. No, I was just, I was going to say in why, like, how does the withdraw, withdraw withdrawalness of of nature fit into this formulation of the contract mm. uh, in the specific act of masochism? Because him and his stories of the character, his stories is is writes up these contracts to enter into these masochistic arrangements. Where how does that fit in with his view? Like, what is that? How does that work with his cosmology? I guess you. Could. Yeah. So so I think it's because. Because of the withdrawalness, withdrawalness of nature, that there, as contract is in a sense a response to it at all. Because of the kind of the withdrawal status of nature and the certain kind of sadistic dynamics of economy, in a sense, that there needs to be a kind of contract to, to, to secure things, to secure a certain form of instability. So this is interesting when it comes to his political writings. So one of his political writings is in the Jewish tale from Galicia, and it's called A Light for Others. So it's about this kind of Jewish prodigy uh, interpreting the Talmud. It's quite a crazy story. So basically, this person is really good at interpreting the Jewish Bible. And then he got into natural history and he become a bit disillusioned. And then he got haunted by the Jewish secret police. And then he decided to convert to Christianity. And then he decided to take a position in, 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 in this Christian region of Eastern Europe. And afterwards, he got even more invested in natural history. And then he straight up turned into an agnostic. And then he joined the revolution of 1848. And then he failed. 1848 failed. And then he became, and then he answered the story with, Oh, we don't know who this guy, where this guy is now. And in it, there's a moment where he tried to think about what does it mean when nature is not interfering or God is not interfering with all of this kind of business of exploitation, business of life preying on death. And then he says, well, people start forming contracts because of that, because there is no some kind of transcendent or transcendental secure ground for our being together that there is not a thing that kind of driven us back into this state of pure chaos. Therefore, there, there can be contracts that got established. But one thing that's really interesting is that he affirmed contracts, but he doesn't affirm state or any form of nationalism. For him, he believes in the idea that in order to become not because he, he think of the state as a purely restrictive. So in that sense, he's quite Marxist. Depends on what you think about Marx, what, what you think Marxism is. But in a sense, he thinks the state as a very restrictive, very bordered form of entity. And what he wants to affirm is borderlessness. So a kind of limited, limitless form of being that can be established through the notion of contract. And while I was writing the thesis, the reason why I was thinking about the concept of contract, but eventually I dropped is when I was trying to connect it to certain more ecological thinking. So like Michel Serres, the nature contract, and I was trying to think about, is it possible 
using this notion of possession, this withdrawal of nature to connect it with, to really think about contract ecologically, such as Michel, Michel said. But eventually I dropped it because find it a little bit dissatisfied with it. And just a quick thing, like, you know, you had mentioned at the beginning that your advisor said, you know, the politics of masochism would be kind of boring and sort of take a different route. I don't know if you've read the the book, the, the Social Contract Masochist Contract about the Rousseau, a, Rousseau, a masochistic reading of Rousseau, and it lines up really well with there even being three parties and Rousseau submitting to, you know, the, the contract and writing up the contract and stuff. And it, that wasn't satisfying for me either. In terms of trying to find a political or theological explanation for or use for masochism, so yeah, just I agree with you there. Historically, the contract's kind of mm-hmm. it's hard. One thing that's also interesting about Sahamasa, another reason why I dropped the notion of contract is that the contract is never stable. So, for instance, if we read Venus and Fur, he formed a contract with this woman with with Wanda, and at the end, the contract got torn apart because they were so driven by this need to possess each other. And then they were in this constant kind of dynamic of trying to, and at the end, he turned into a sadist. And Deleuze says very rightly at the end, one says that when he turned into a sadist, he had to kill the massacres inside themselves. So the contract is never a stable thing. And that's another reason why I was a bit dissatisfied with it. Also with Deleuze's reading of the overemphasis on the contract. I mean, and and lastly, on this, on the note of the contract, I mean, it, that was kind of the emancipatory potential with the contract, right? Is that you can submit yourself to it, but it is unstable in insofar as you are the one that chooses when when the moment that that it breaks up, that you rip it apart, that their arrangement falls apart. And th- to me, there was something I wanted to I wanted to find. Like, can we just say that, like, oh, our social contract with the government is meant to be torn apart, oh, we can revolt at any time, you know, that just didn't seem very powerful to me. It kind mm. of, I think we, we can choose to do that already. Yeah. I have something that I, I wanted to bring up that I really liked about your paper. And, and once again, in the context of this discussion, having another insight, and it's this book, The Three-Body Problem. And I, I have not you, read this book. You're not going to believe what comes up in the first half. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, anyway, this is this is I'm taking your thesis here as a recommendation to read this book because it has been put forward to me a couple of times. Now I must do it. But what I find interesting is and I'm I'm kind of in this sort of mythical mode of thought because I'm working with Deleuze, Carl Jung and James Hillman right now. But it's interesting to kind of read the the image of three sons against three mothers. I, I don't know. Something's coming up for me there. But Anyway, what I like, I like what you did with the three body problem. And, and I'd like you to sort of explicate, you know, what's going on in the story and your interpretation of it. But this idea that there are three sons, you know, figuratively speaking, and, you know, taking this as a sort of paradigm for understanding, you know, the, the accursed share in our world, there is a sense in which the son is utterly violent, destructive, and deathly. This is actually something that comes up in the Jungian tradition in this, this alchemical notion of the black sun as mm-hmm. this sort of, I don't know if you've read this book by Stanton Marlin. If this is something that you would like it, you think is somewhat in your wheelhouse, it's definitely nice to read alongside figures like Deleuze and Bataille. And that goes for anyone who's listening. But this idea, you know, o- often in like Christian iconography and, and, you know, other traditions around the world, uh, I, I mean, the Aztecs, for example, like we see the sun, there's a very superficial way to see the sun as this positive life giver, right? But of course, behind the the sort of figure and myth of of the sun, you know, we have what could be this sort of black sun or this indifferent sun, a deathly sun, a violent sun. What What is the connection between what's going on in the three-body problem and the work that you're doing with Bataille? And is, th- is this a book that we should read? Yeah. So you should read it. And <laughs> that, that, so to begin, to begin with it, I always sort of this, this phrase my supervisor always say in class, which is, isn't it crazy that we, we live so close to a sun? So in the sense that we traditionally think of the sun as this kind of life giving thing, but think about Mercury, that the sun is not at all this kind of banal being. And, and that actually that's one of the, there was this book that was 
kind of helpful for my thesis. By the end, I really fundamentally disagree with it, which is Alexander Timofeeva's, sorry for the pronunciation, the book Sober Politics, that there is a very great, I think, elaboration on the Bataillian notion of the sun and all. But at the end, the book ended with an affirmation of sharing, which I don't quite see in the notion of the statistics sun. That the sun doesn't seem to care about to care about us too much too much. Because the sun, if we think about it, is dying and is excessively sadistically dying and just blasted all of this energy onto the earth. So when I so so the that's the kind of the motivation behind using the three body problem, which is the three bodies. So the story goes something like there is this place in the Alpha Centauri, mm-hmm. there were three stars. And there was this planet that's revolving around the three stars. And because there are three stars, so the movement or the appearance, the frequency of the sun was never calculable, was never predictable. And all the scientists there, what they were really have been trying to think about is how to, how do we predict the sun and how do we organize our civilization according to the sun's schedule? And at the end, it's an impossibility. So sometimes there's only one very small star in the sky. Everything on Earth would not on Earth on that planet will freeze, and then sometimes it will be two sun and it stays there for a relatively longer amount of duration, and there will be a civilization, and then suddenly there will be three sun, and the entire planet will be burning. And the worst scenario is when the sun lines up, and the entire planet will be torn apart. Hmm. So what I saw was interesting about that is that it revealed the hubris of human assumption about our sun, which is. Because of our very short planetary existence, we assume the sun as something very stable and very kind and very caring. But really, the sun could go supernova at any minute from a human perspective. We, we never know that. Or the sun could just like one day just be like, see it? And I will be frozen to death. That'd be so cool. That would be very cool. Be- <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know we're coming up to the hour and I'm sure Adam has some more questions, but maybe now's the perfect time to follow up with this question. So you're looking at Timofeeva's work, the, the upshot of which is, of course, we realize the intrinsic violence of not only the sun, but the universe writ large. It, it's a common move, I think, politically to make, which is to acknowledge this gross indifference of, of the cosmos. But then, okay, we're going to do kumbaya by the campfire anyway. We're going to create a politics of sharing. And amidst the realization that is this violent axiom that drives everything, we're going to do our best regardless. I, I know maybe this is a, a straw man or a mischaracterization of not only Timofeeva, but maybe even your critique of her. But what is the political upshot then of somebody like Bataille for you, especially after you have in your thesis taken a posture against him? I mean, clearly you are using him to, to flesh out your own theory of, of sadism. It, what, what do you think is the sort of positive takeaway, if, if there's any at all, from this encounter with Bataille? Yeah, so what I was writing about, I was mostly thinking about what kind of ecological practice can come out of it. And I think one thing that's really positive with Bataille's concept of expenditure and excess is to reject any kind of austerity ecological practices. So kind of a very vulgar notion of conservationism. This idea that we're always running short on energy, we're always running short on everything. Whereas from a battalion perspective, the problem that like for instance the earth is warming up too much, it's not really that we're not we're short of energy. It's that we have too much. That the sun has blasted all of this radiation to us and we don't know what to do with it. So one thing, like my supervisor office mentioned, is this notion of the albedo in the sense that if we now start wearing like white t-shirts, the earth will actually start to cool down, <laughs> more or less. So in a sense, the question has become, it's not about conservation, it's not about how to use energy, because energy is not something that you can capture and possess. So there comes to the question of possession, because energy, in a sense, its ontological reality is different. Is uh, it's like a grid. It's like a it's like a matrix of matrix of difference. So the question has become how to creatively dissipate energy, or how to how to exist in a certain energetic position without causing too much entropy. Mm. How to 
without heating up the planet. My question then would be, the risk is, or I mean, I would, I would highlight the risk at this point, you know, do we risk then making recourse back to this more sophisticated utilitarian position, which Bataille would absolutely be against? What, what would be the bulwark that we could create for ourselves so that we don't do that? Yeah, that's, that's another aspect of Bataille that I find really refreshing, which is he was the one who tried to think about the limit of capitalism because mm. the discourse or critique of capitalism has always been that, no, capitalism limited, limitless. Is, is constantly trying to expand and there is no hold to it. And whereas Bataille is trying to say, no, capital is incredibly limited. If we from take it from a general economic point of view of energy, that it actually is very limited in terms of the, the way that it tries to dissipate energy. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I had a, this is all really wonderful, Tiger. Thank you. I th I had, you know, my, my favorite takeaway towards the end is the, uh, there's a quote that I want to read. It's like, Sakura Masak was able to see that in order to live, living beings must first learn to possess. It is only through possession that the consumption of energy can be possible. This to me was really interesting because Bataille, of course, as we've mentioned, emphasizes excess over scarcity at the cost of perhaps what it takes to possess it to then expend it. Uh, and this has a lot of political concerns of, of winners and losers when we look at history of, of violence, of positions of who is able to consume, things like that. And, you know, I kind of wanted to segue into my, my final question, which was, you know, something I'm interested in is using masochism politically, even though it might be boring or so far it has been boring or, or to find a political theological use. You know, Deleuze mentions there's a black theology of pain versus of pleasure is it is your main line of thought this ecological project are there other paths that can be taken with masochism just from your interaction with it i mean the legacy of cain it was it was about property it was about work death love war right how how might one go about you know if this is really for me right how do i go about trying to apply masochism or interface it with other problems contemporary or historically you know any recommendations there yeah so so initially when i said masochism well rather when my supervisor said masochism just to do a political thesis on it is be boring is mostly because of masochism has only been psychoanalytic as a psychoanalytic concept and from that respect if we do some kind of politics of masochism you end up reading marcuse reading vesh or reading kind of freud or you know that stuff and from that perspective it's boring but then, after I really started trying to rethink like a broader concept of masochism, I find it incredibly interesting because Sakamasak himself is a uh, is a utopian thinker. Like I said, mentioned earlier, he believes in borderlessness. He believes in statelessness. So he's a complete internationalist. Like at the end of the story, I mentioned the guy who went to join the eighteen forty eight revolution and trying to bring about a new world where there is no state or anything. So one thing that was that I was fascinated by is his starting point are, in a sense, lined up with a lot of these kind of social Darwinian notions of like, oh, the world is just life struggling against other life and all of these kind of competition going on. And there is no God. There is no morality. There is no this and that. And it's just a matter of evolution. But most of these social Darwinians became fascist, whereas he tried to affirm a kind of utopian, I'm not sure if I can say communistic, but a stateless, certainly, form of being. And I was, that was something I was trying to work out. And what, what made that possible? Well, what is the conditional possibility for that form of political reality based on this understanding of natural history? And I haven't figured that out yet. Hopefully someone will. <laughs> No, definitely super helpful. And, you know, I guess there's also, uh, you you open, I had to say this at least once, you opened the paper, and Craig, you missed this, but he opens it with Synecdoche, New York, Charlie Kaufman's movie, which is my favorite movie. Uh, and I, it was a great, it was a great opening. I, I, it was fantastic. So, you know, there's some masochistic film analysis mm. studies up there too. Awesome. But I do really like the idea as well, fo focusing on ecology, because there's, there's a, it's kind of, ecological geographical tradition actually 
which I think would be good. I think it'd be quite good to think about in terms of breaking Massok out of a kind of social Darwinist milieu. Because when we was doing a, the Bataille in context seminars, Pisa's know that you you got us to read was Stephen Jay Gould's Kropotkin was no crackpot, and the idea that actually someone like Kropotkin's sort of reading or rejection of Darwin in favor of like a mutual age reading is actually very common, especially for those areas of Eastern Europe, particularly you know, the former Russian Empire and bordering on it, because their reading was rather than kind of a player versus player. There's no you put a PvP, a player versus player reading of SARS, you know, all everyone against everyone else because they're all competing for scarce resources, but nonetheless, as soon as they stop, as soon as they st- they're scarce resources, but nonetheless, there's so many can go around, they're still fighting over them. And the Russians, sort of examples, where they're critiquing Darwin's idea that actually it's more of a player versus environment kind of aspect. It's actually the coldness of nature is what we're responding to, even in the coldness of, say, the western Ukrainian plains of, of Galicia. And I, I really think there's a, a strong geographical element there. Not in the sense that there's a geographical element in the way that like Hegel would do it when he starts, you know, grabbing those fucking skull calipers. But like actually a geography of, of the geographic ways in which you can change your relationship to natural distributions of energy in terms of competition versus cooperation. Yeah, for sure. Like that's one of the reasons why I was trying to assert or affirm Sakamasak's word Bataille, which is Bataille was writing in where was he writing in Paris, somewhere nice, where the climate is warm and, and everything is hot. Whereas Sahamasek was always thinking about this kind of cold, cold place in Eastern Europe. And, uh, and that's when I thought that maybe it's not always excessive. Sometimes you need to try to capture energy first. You need to possess energy first. In that sense, yeah, like there's definitely like this kind of geographical element to his entire cosmology. And what kind of politics kind of rise from a, a politics of coldness? especially in the age of global warming. One thing I was, this might be very irrelevant. I was, I've been obsessing with Russian cosmism a bit. And then I recently got this book called, uh, it was basically an anthropological study of Russian cosmism in today's St. Petersburg, which is this notion of the cryo chamber. And they were trying, people were trying to freeze their corpse. And so that someday in the future, they can be revived. So there's a kind of this notion of the cryo this notion of coldness, what can, what kind of sociality is really associated with that? And that's something really fascinating to think about. That is fascinating because Russian cosmism is usually far too solar. For so the idea that there's a co- that Fedorov is like, yeah, we've got to colonize the sun and then reanimate everyone. The coldness of death is a moral failing. So this idea of a cryo chamber. Yeah. Maybe el- listeners, if you haven't already, go back, check out a Russian cosmism episode yeah. and think about what happens if you replace the sun in this? Because maybe most of the things we really, which we really fucking tear Fedorov a new one in the episode, but maybe there is a future to this. Yeah. A cold I think, future. Yeah, I think one really important concept there is, is entropy and energy. So that's one, another thing that's related to politics and political philosophy, which is, I was reading a lot of Blanchot's writing on the side, because at the time I was trying to figure out this kind of French discourse of sadism. And one of the key things that Panchot was picking up in the Sad is the Sad's association with the French Revolution and how Saint Just was actually taking certain things. Like Saint Just would say something, we need to affirm energy. We need to not affirm force. We need to affirm energy. And the Sad has some kind of commentary on that. And so I always thought that what does it mean to formulate entropy and energy as political concepts? Energy is anageya, its ability to do work. But at the same time, entropy seems to be this kind of very floating concept that's not yet really formulated into political discourse because it's often been thought of as chaos in a very vulgar way. Whereas another more fruitful aspect of it is this concept of irreversibility. But, you know, we're kind of getting very digressed from masochism now. I have two final thing, like quick things to say, not really questions, but just like to see if you've see if you've thought of this is like you know i'm reading you know miss the coldness and cruelty by deleuze rita and the the mothers and the sort of like you were saying this like there's a lot of jewish mysticism the talmud and and things and lots of lots of science fiction can be brought in you know we just talked about the 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 russian solar what is the 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 word for where they replace the sun where we find a new sun like that is found throughout a lot of science fiction 
you know, his three mothers made me think of the three mothers trilogy, which is the, 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 I believe it's the Italian or French or Spanish series of movies about the three witches that live across the globe, kind of controlling everything. I was trying to interface his three mothers with that. And then also the book of the new son by Gene Wolfe, where the main character is, to, is living on a world where the son is dying and that needs to be replaced millions of years in the future. And his trade is being a torturer. And so I, you know, I'm seeing, there's so many inklings of this everywhere that it's, it seems it can't just be a coincidence that Masak was also dealing with so many of these themes, right? And there's this sort of genealogy of these ideas that we are existentially facing that I think he laid a great groundwork for. So I think he's really useful in a lot of ways. And it's very, it's very, it's exciting. And it's just like, kind of, like you said, I, me and Adam think you're doing something new here, very new. And so it was really exciting to, to, to read this as Bataille fans and as people having to deal with say, you know, to say it, to saw it a lot. So it's been, it's been a pleasure talking with you and, and reading your paper. And we're really looking forward to you finishing the book. That would be very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm not sure if I will be able to finish it because I'm, I don't know. Cause right now I'm kind of moving on into my PhD thesis, which mm. is different direction, which is the concept of extinction which might be kind of related to masochism. And then there's this brilliant book recently published by Urbanomics by Thomas Monihan. And the book mm. is called X-Risk. And he was basically, the main argument of the entire book was that extinction is a very distinctly modern invention. And it's only made possible with Kant's critical metaphysics. So kind of to look back into our discussion earlier with regard to Kant and sadism and the failure of excess, so the argument, the reason why this Kant who made it possible is because before Kant, you can, well, whatever it is already is. That's a metaphysical principle of it all. And you can make metaphysical speculation about perfection, about eternality, about futurity. But after the critical project, you can no longer do that anymore. Not justifiably so. So in that sense, because in the past, when you study extinction, when you think about Annihilation is always this biblical religious notion of apocalypse. It's about, but what, when you're studying apocalypse or eschatology, what you're really studying is the eternality of values. What remains after the world has ended? But after Kant, you can't do that anymore. You cannot never speculate. And Kant himself contemplated on human extinction for quite a while. There's an essay called The End of All Things and the Opus Postnum. And also I was thinking the categorical imperative. Really, in a different way, becomes a human extermination morality, because you know the awkward position of the suicide that occupies his milk. So, in that sense, it's it's kind of maybe it's relevant, but to masochism. Very much reminds me of stuff like you get out of Ray Brassier as well. The idea of the extension. I mean, at one point we should probably do like an episode on the Kant's end of all things because Kant is very Kant is very goth, although also. Chance is nonetheless a very masochistic thinker. I just want to say thanks once again, Tiger. I mean, you've definitely opened a line of thought that, you know, like Noah and Adam have said, you know, I think is is quite original and cuts across many of the interests. And this will be a paper that I could probably come back to, to at least instigate some of my own thinking. So I, I appreciate what you've done. And, and I thank you again for coming on the show. I'm really, really glad that it's actually people find it inspiring or in some way. Yeah, thank you, thank you. All right, rather than be sadist, sadistic, and, and keep our listeners tied down any longer, let's say let's break the contract, which of course we have imposed on everyone here within the structures of the entity known as podcasting. Sign off, and Tiger, thank you again for coming on. It's been great having you on. Yeah, thank you.